If you were here uh, last Sunday, uh, we, we talked about um, the power of belief, both for good and for evil in our world. And we talked about how belief leads to words and words leads to emotions and emotions drive us to both great good and beauty in the world, but words and emotions also lead to evil. And I think um, this week um, we have seen what that evil looks like. Um, this morning, our, our hearts and our prayers go with the families in Pittsburgh, um, with that synagogue community um, that has suffered such a tragic loss. Um, I, I know a number of people in our church are really um, closely tied into the Jewish community in DC. Um, some of you are going to vigils today, and I was just, I, I encourage you, if you're going, um, if you could post that on Facebook. I know there's already been one or two that's been posted to our Facebook community. Um, so we have kind of an internal community for our church. Um, and uh, it's a great way just to share whatever you have going on, um, whether you have an apartment to rent, but also if you're going to like a vigil. Um, and so I know someone's already posted one they're going to this evening. Um, I just really hope that we as a, as a community um, can be uh, support uh, the Jewish community in DC um, through this very difficult um, period. Um, and then the other thing is there's also, I, I, I'm still discovering exactly how um, close all the, um, the bomb scares have impacted our community. Um, one of our members was in New York at the CNN Bureau either the day that the, the bomb arrived or right after. Another one of our, our members I found out after the first service was, um, had just gotten back from a very dangerous country um, where they felt quite safe and then they arrived back in New York and found themselves 100 feet from where one of the bombs had just arrived and got there as everyone was running. Um, and it's just, it's a time of chaos and uh, I just want to encourage us as a community um, to, to be praying for, for peace in our world, um, be praying that sanity, sanity wins. Um, yeah, I just, it's been, it's very heavy on my heart. And if you have an opportunity today, if there's a vigil or some way that you can support um, the Jewish community in DC, I'd really encourage you to do that because it's beyond just the, the, the power of, of, of anti-Semitism in our world, historically and even today, is, is, it's just an evil um, that we cannot stand by and allow to go unchecked. So anyway, um, I think that's all I want to say about that. Let's pray, and then we can dive in. God, our hearts are heavy. To, um, our hearts are heavy with the evil in our world. We are confronted by. Um, we are confronted by what happens when we allow hatred and rhetoric to run amok. Um, I pray that you just um, help us as a community to be a place of peace and restoration. And may we be a part of, of your re redemption and renewal of all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just a couple quick announcements before I dive in. Um, I am going to be gone for a few weeks um, in November, so we're going to have some incredible guest speakers. Next Sunday, though, you get to hear from Pastor Ramon here in the morning service. Um, he is our church planter in residence, and he is um, starting this really unique um, arts-based uh, worship gathering uh, and Thursday evenings actually in the old building that we used to be at on H Street. Um, and so you'll get to hear a bit more about that. So um, Pastor Ramon in the morning. And then in the evening, um, we're going to have the practice at our downtown um, parish. Um, with, uh, with Aaron Nequist. If you remember, if you were here last week, um, we did that last week, it's, or last year, it's a, it's, a, 
it's hard to explain. You should just come and check it out. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very unique worship experience, kind of centered around the piano um, and the Eucharist. Um, and it, it's just, it's really, it's, it's, a powerful, it's a powerful experience. So um, practice at 5 p.m., um, and we'll have uh, table kids for kids five and under. And then if you're new to the table, next week we begin our next steps track up again. We have a class called Making the Table Home. And this is a great opportunity to learn a bit more about our community. And then finally, um, you know, dinner parties launched three or four weeks ago, but in Columbia Heights, they filled up really quickly, uh, or it filled up really quickly. I guess we had one or two, um, but we just had a new one open this week. Um, and so if you live in the Columbia Heights neighborhood and you are just you're a procrastinator, let's just be honest, you're a procrastinator, and that's why you don't have a community group near or a dinner party near your house. There is grace. Um, so, uh, yeah, I hope you, hope you join that. Um, so we are, today's the last day of this series, Blank Slate. Um, I've enjoyed getting to preach this series. It allows me to lean into things I like to talk about. Um, I really enjoyed getting to, to preach last week. I, I, got a, I got a note from one person this week that said that was a very intense sermon. I'm not sure if that was good or bad, but there it is. Um, <clears throat> if you missed any of them, um, you can go online. We'll have all of them up there. You could binge watch them. I know some of you binge likes to binge watch, you know, I don't know, The Office. You could go home, get your favorite beverage, and just listen to the whole series all the way through. I, doesn't that sound like fun? Um, <laughs> Pastor Jessica tells me she uses them to go to sleep at night sometimes, so that might work too. Anyway, um, this is the last Sunday, but in, in case this is your first Sunday or you missed part of it, let me just walk you through where we have been. So the general idea is this, that there was a point in your life, most likely in childhood or young adulthood, when somebody kind of handed you a faith tradition and said, here, believe this, and you're 10 or 12, and you're just like, okay, sounds good. And then, then life happens, you experience life, and you realize that the faith you are handed and the realities of life don't really match up. And, and what ends up happening is nothing, um, it's normally not even conscious, but there just begins to be a gap that begins to emerge between the, the faith that you were given as a childhood and what you believe in adulthood. And for many of you, you just woke up one day and you realized that your faith was no longer relevant to your life. And so what we've been doing in this series is we said, okay, what would it look like if you were to restart, if you were to wipe the slate clean, if you were to wipe the slate clean and you were to start from the ground floor? Maybe, maybe you are starting your faith journey for the first time, or maybe you have been in church since the day you were born and, and it's just not working for you anymore. What are the things that you could, should consider. And so just quickly, where we've been is this. Well, the first week we said that you need to begin first by wrestling a question to the ground. And that question is not, is the Bible true? Or did Adam and Eve really walk on this earth? Or was the world created in six days? Or whatever the questions are that people have. And those are all interesting questions and you can debate and argue those and talk about those till you're blue in the face. But that's not the question you need to wrestle to the ground. The question you need to wrestle to the ground is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the thing you need to figure out for yourself. Who is Jesus? And then the next week, we talked about the difference between being a mistaker and a sinner. Um, what, what does it mean to be a sinner? It's such an, like an old school word. No one talks about sin anymore. Um, it has so much baggage, and so we unpacked that. And then the next week, we talked about the first step being faith, like taking a leap. Uh, taking a leap into the darkness and that being like the first step that we need to do. And then, and then we did one of my favorite sermons is the role of rules. Um, we talked about the, how rules function in religion. I think it's really interesting to think about. And then what, we asked the question, what can wash away our 
our sins. And then we looked at this concept of grace, which is one of the central tenets of the Christian faith, um, this unmerited favor, this thing that we get for nothing. Um, that's really maybe the hardest thing for some of us to wrap our heads around because we've been told our whole lives that we, if we perform and we do a good job, then we are rewarded. And the idea that we receive something for nothing is really hard to come to grips with. And then last week, I really enjoyed last week, like I said, we talked about belief and how belief functions. Um, uh, and just kind of we stripped it of all of its religiosity. Right? Belief gets attached to all these kind of mystical things. Um, we just said, what's the function of belief? And we said that belief is powerful simply, I mean, that religious belief is powerful because belief is powerful. And we kind of explored what makes Christianity different. Um, and, I, and at the end of the day, kind of the, the, the baseline for that sermon was that what's fascinating about Christianity is it's not based on belief. It, it, it's based on an event. Uh, like that, if the earliest followers of Jesus, the thing that, that captivated them wasn't what Jesus had taught, but it was an event. It was something they'd experienced. But today I want to talk about the one other thing that I think you should think about or consider um, as you think about beginning your faith or restarting your faith. And it, and it begins, um, the story begins right outside the city of Caesarea Philippi, which is about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples were on their way to that city. Um, Caesarea Philippi was named after a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus, who had been the emperor of the Roman Empire. Um, he, had, he had died and the city had been renamed for him around 14 AD. So Jesus was just beginning to drive right about that time and um, getting his learner's permit. And, um, and, and so, or whatever 14-year-olds are doing, is that, that's too young. Anyway, um, yeah, uh, now I'm processing how, when you can drive. Um, I, I, got, I, I, I got my learner's permit when I was 15. You don't need to know this, but I wanted to drive so desperately because I lived in Texas, and that was the only, like, you had to drive everywhere. So the morning that I turned 16, I'd had my learner's permit, and the morning I turned 16, I made my dad get up at 8 a.m. The moment the DMV opened, we were the first people in line, and then I was free. Um, I wasn't. Um, has nothing to do with Jesus. Um, I don't know why I share these stories. So anyway, Jesus, uh, so around the time Jesus was 14, um, it's re uh, Caesar dies, Caesar Augustus dies, and the city is named after him. I, I think I have a picture of the ruins here. There's not much to look at now. But in the time of Jesus, this was an incredible city. It was just a stunning city. Um, and uh, and Caesar Augustus, the guy the city was named for, he was the, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And many people in the Roman Empire talked about Julius Caesar as being um, divine. And, and so Caesar Augustus would have been referred to as the son of God. Um, we sometimes miss how, how, what the political language that's overlaid the gospel text. A lot of the language in the gospel has incredible political implications. So to say that Jesus is the son of God is in direct um, a direct denial or a direct competition with the idea that Caesar is the son of God. Um, so anyway, they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi or they're outside the city. And, and, and my guess is, and this I'm reading in the text, but my guess is they're having a conversation about Caesar and whether he's the son of God. And, and then Jesus looks at his disciples and he said, so if you don't think that he's the son of God, who do you think that I am? And of course, the first person to respond is always the first person to respond, Peter. He, he says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. Now this is so, like, as you're thinking about this, we talked about this last week, 
But when Jesus died, the people that followed Jesus believed he was dead, and that was the end of the story. And it's, it's interesting, particularly Peter. Like, Peter, we have his denials recorded. Peter's the one who denies Jesus three times. Like, he's like, I have no idea who you're talking about. But he's, like, just not too long before that moment. He's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And living is really a key word, right, because it's uh, Julius Caesar's dead. He's the, you know, so the son of the living God as opposed to the son of a dead God. Um, you are the son of the living God. And uh, Jesus is like, you're right. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have the text in front of me, but I think Jesus says something like, maybe, I, I don't know if I put it up here, um, but like clearly, Peter, you didn't figure that on your own because you're not that smart. God must have revealed that to you. Something like that. It was like when, you, like, when you think about it, Jesus is just always not sure that Peter's the brightest. Like, clearly, Peter, God had to show that to you. Um, so uh, anyway, um, and, then, and then there's, but here's where I'm going. It's not about Peter's smartness. Um, uh, Jesus then says, and on this rock... I will build my church. Um, now, this is the worst translated word maybe in all the New Testament. Jesus uh, spoke Aramaic. Um, we, we forget that sometimes. Jesus spoke Aramaic. So when we're reading the teachings of Jesus, we have multiple translations going on because most of us, unless you're a Greek scholar, are reading the, the New Testament in English. And the New Testament was written in Greek, but it was originally spoken. Jesus, uh, like primary language, was Aramaic. So Jesus' language or Jesus' speech gets translated into Greek and then gets translated into English. So guessing we lost a little bit there along the way. Um, but but the word here is is that is translated church in the Greek is actually ecclesia. Um, and ecclesia simply means it's not a religious word. In the Greek, in, in, in Greek, it just simply means the gathering or the assembly or the congregation. So Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my gathering, my assembly, my congregation. The way I like to translate it is I will build a movement of people. Now, there's all kinds of arguments, particularly if you grew up in Catholicism, there's all these arguments between Catholics and Protestants on whether Peter is the rock and apostolic secession and all these things that come from that verse. Um, but Jesus just says, look, my gathering, my assembly, my movement is going to be built on you, a new ragtag group of guys who are essentially outlaws. Um, they're not that smart. They're fishermen. They're just kind of average, ordinary, everyday people. He's like, my movement, the thing that I'm going to be doing in the world is going to be built. Um, it's going to begin with you all. Um, and, and my guess is they didn't really understand fully what Jesus was talking about. One other thing, and maybe I'm just beating a dead horse, but I think it's kind of, it's, it's worth knowing, is the word church that we, tip, that we translate church comes from the German. There's this German word, um, I think I have it up here. Yeah, it, it actually, I'm not going to pronounce it because Germans don't agree on how to pronounce it. Um, and, uh, but but it's, essentially it sounds like church, um, which is how we get the word church. But it actually means house of the Lord. So church being a place as opposed to a people. Um, and, uh, and, and I think if, if I wanted you to hear anything this morning, it's this, is that Jesus did not predict a place. Jesus predicted a people. Jesus did not predict a place. He predicted a people. And this, this, the translation of the word church, um, ecclesia, is 
actually very contentious. Um, it was one of the things that really uh, made the powers that be upset at William Tyndale. William Tyndale is one of the first people who translated um, the scripture, scripture into English. And when he was going back and doing his translation, he stumbled on this word. Um, and he's like, wait, no, that should not be translated church. That should be translated gathering or assembly. But if you are the powers that be and you are using these texts as a foundation for your power, if you are church leaders, um, that's very threatening. And so church leaders, like this isn't, this is not a thousand years ago or 2,000 years ago. This is 400 years ago or thereabouts. Church leaders um, strangled William Tyndale over his translation of the New Testament, this among other things, um, and then burned him at a stake. And, and so my whole point there is church leaders today aren't as bad as you think they are, right? We could be much worse. We could be much worse. So anyway, um, this is a big deal. This is a big deal how you translate this word. And so Jesus says, look, I'm going to build this Jesus gathering. And then Jesus dies. Um, Jesus dies. And those who were closest to Jesus, those who'd hung out with Jesus, believed he was dead. Nobody was trying to, like, they just scattered. They took off um, in every direction. And then something happened. Something happened. And they all come pouring back into the city. Um, and then um, they, have a, they, they hang out right before he leaves. There's a group of people we don't know the exact number, probably around 100 or so, who hang out with Jesus before he goes back into heaven. And then he says this, uh, Matthew uh, 28, verse 18. Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven has been given to me. That's an incredibly arrogant statement. If you, like, just stop and think about it. So Jesus is talking to them, and he's like, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Either Jesus is a megalomaniac, or it's true, right? Like, like it, it's one or the other. Verse 28, or, or Matthew 28, verse 18 um, and 19. Therefore, go, this is Jesus, this is the final words that he speaks in Matthew's gospel. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. So Jesus like, look, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And, I, and he says in another place, I'm granting you this authority. And then he said, I want, you to go, I want you to go into all the world, into all nations, into every place there is. This is not a message for a small area, for certain people. This is for all the nations. And I want you to baptize, inaugurate people into this movement, into this Jesus assembly, this thing that is starting with, with you. And then I want you to teach them how to live into my new life, into this new way of being that I've taught you. You to go into all the world spreading this Jesus movement. And, and you have to think about this. These people are, it's a ragtag group. They're, they're outlaws, essentially. Jesus has just been killed. They are on the margins of, kind of, of, of their religious world. And Jesus says, there's something that's amazing that's going to happen in and through you, and it will change the course of human history. And then, and then the final words that Jesus spoke to them in Matthew 28, 20, and he said, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. And, and then this is just, I find interesting. At that moment, Jesus disappears, which um, I, just, I don't know why I think that's interesting that he's like, I will be with you always, and then poof, he's gone. Um, <laughs> But, but, 
But in spite of this Jesus movement, in spite of this Jesus movement, or in spite of the ragtag group, this Jesus movement begins to grow and it begins to grow and begins to grow. And one of the things you, I don't remember where it is exactly, but you pick up and it always takes me by surprise that a lot of the early Jesus followers ended up being Pharisees. A lot of the people who tried to kill Jesus and who were Jesus' biggest enemies end up converting over to the Jesus movement. And Christianity is initially a revival movement within Judaism. All the first followers of Jesus um, were Jews, and it was essentially just seen as being a movement within Judaism. But what ends up happening, and this happens over and over, and this always happens in movements, and this happens in churches all the time, is that things begin to grow, things begin to take off, and, and then we become complacent. And there's a point pretty early on where the Jesus movement, I mean, we're not talking long after Jesus has died, 10, 20 years, like it's spreading, it's growing, you're no longer on your own, you're no longer afraid of being killed for the most part, although there is, there is some threat, and um, it's spreading a little bit beyond Jerusalem, but primarily just to other Jewish communities, synagogues. Um, but it kind of gets bogged down, and, and, and it just kind of, it, it stops growing, and, and there's a complacency. And this next part is completely conjecture, um, but I think that, like, God and Jesus get together up in heaven, and, and God is like, um, I thought you said these, these were your, the, like, I should trust these guys, but they're not doing that great a job. What, 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 you said trust Peter, but Peter really, even for as brash as he is, he's, he's kind of complacent right now. And, and, and so they, they end up, Jesus ends up calling this guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Um, this, is, this is interesting to kind of just, I, I, it's important to have timelines when you're looking at scripture. So Saul of Tarsus uh, is called to become a Jesus follower. He has this experience, we know him as Paul. He's on the road to Damascus. Um, this is about 20 years after Jesus died so, and rose again. So about 20 years after Jesus died and rose again, Jesus calls um, Saul, who is one of the chief critics of the Jesus movement. He was the chief rabbi, but he was also a, like he had been killing Jesus followers because he saw it as a threat. And he has an experience with the risen Jesus 20 years after um, Jesus has died and rose again. And, um, and it changes everything. And it also changes the course of, of the church and of Christian, the Christian story. Um, Paul, because it's, this happens 20 years after Jesus has rose, um, most of the early disciples are still alive because they were young guys. So they're 40, 45. So Paul, a lot of what he knows about Jesus, he learns firsthand from Jesus' early uh, disciples and followers. And, and well, oh, that was loud. Um, <laughs> you can't figure out why it's doing it. We're trying to figure it out, but I'm just gonna keep talking through it because I hate holding a handheld mic. Um, kind of, if you're charismatic, just think of it like the spirit speaking through the sound system and <laughs> discern what the spirit is trying to say to you. Um, it happened at a really powerful moment in the other service. Like there was something, I was like, if God was gonna speak, it, and it just it was so loud, the whole room jumped, and it may have been God. Um, anyway, what, we were talking about something important. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, oh, so Paul, and, and so he hangs out with, the, he, he, he goes and meets with the, the, the Jesus' disciples. And essentially what he says to them is, okay, guys, let's split the world up. You all take Jerusalem, and I'll take the rest of the world. That's kind of basically how the conversation goes. And um, that's not in the Bible, but that's my guess. Because that's end up what's happening. All the other followers of Jesus, they never really, like that early gap, that, those early group of people, they don't really ever move that far beyond where they began. But Paul 
for the next 30 years, travels all over the Roman Empire. I mean, he takes, you should go home. I tried to get maps and it just got a little too confusing because there's so many trips. He has four major missionary journeys. But go look at like where Paul traveled. I mean, he goes from Syria, he goes over to modern day Italy, to Rome. He goes, some people think in his travels, he went all the way over to the UK, Great Britain. I mean, he is going all around the Roman Empire multiple times, like every major city, if there was a major city in the Roman Empire, Paul was going there, and when he would go to the cities, um, he, his goal was simply to, to proclaim the message of the risen Jesus, and then to start a Jesus gathering, to start an ecclesia. To, essentially, he was starting small groups, these small little churches, these small little Jesus communities, wherever he went, and then he would go on to the next city. This, by the way, is why the letters that Paul writes that we now have in the New Testament, those letters are written to these small churches. Some of them, the pastoral epistles, um, are actually kind of organizational in, uh, in nature, right? Like, this is how you should structure these early churches. Um, others, like Romans, are theological in nature. He's trying to give some theology to these fledgling churches. But, but So he's going from church to church to church, to, or from city to city, starting these Jesus gatherings. But the thing is, and this goes on for a period of 30 years, there's all kinds of hardship. He's shipwrecked, he's put in prison. Um, uh, it's, just, it's, it's a really difficult time, but Paul is a force of nature. He can't be stopped. And then at the end of 30 years, there are Jesus gatherings in all of these cities, but we shouldn't over-exaggerate how many people, followers of Jesus are by this point. So 30 years in... five to 10,000 probably in a, on a high end. Um, most cities... These gatherings are really small. They weren't that big. Um, and, and then Paul is arrested and he's taken to the Roman Empire. And, uh, and, and he's going to be killed. And, and, uh, and I, I, you have to use your imagination for these next few moments. But one of the things that we end up doing is sometimes we end up lionizing or idolizing people of great faith and we, we make them as being people who never have doubt. Uh, but if you've ever known anyone of great faith or you've ever known anyone that's accomplished something great, you're like, that person has never doubted before. I guarantee you they have because if you've ever had a chance to talk to someone who's accomplished something great, there were moments in the, in the middle where they didn't know if they could go on. I mean, I love reading stories about Dr. King. There's these powerful moments where early in the civil rights movement, He's like, I don't think I can go on another day. And my guess is that at Paul, as he's sitting, he's dedicated his whole life to this Jesus movement. And they've been told that it's going to spread through all the world. But when he dies, it's pretty small. It's pretty insignificant. It really is. It's not making a big impact in the globe. And, and this is where you need to use your imagination. But, you know, they're taking Paul. Paul is, is held in, in, the, uh, in a, a, basically a pit where political prisoners are held. This is, you can go visit this in Rome today. Um, and it's at the base of Palatine Hill where the, the, where the emperors have their palaces. And, and, and so they're taking Paul out. And, and as they're taking him out, they take him past the, the Roman Forum. And if you, I, I have a picture here. I, I went to Rome last summer, and I, some of the pictures are mine. Some of them I stole from Google. And um, if they're really pretty, I stole them from Google. And uh, they take them past the Roman Forum, and I've got the ruin, pictures of the ruins here. But the time Paul was being walked through the Forum, 
they weren't ruins. They were phenomenal. Um, and they're temples, incredible temples to every God you can ever imagine. And, and as Paul's being carried off and he's surrounded by the greatness of Rome, so up on the hill is the emperor's palace and then there's all these incredible temples. Paul has to think for just a moment, this is it, like the Jesus movement it can't compete against Rome. It can't compete against this. And, and then they, they take Paul, I'm guessing by, um, take Paul by what was called, I think it's Nero's Circus, and one of the places they'd killed tons of Christians. And by the Colosseum, all this is really condensed into a close, close area. But I wish maybe I could have been there with Paul and said, Paul, you're not gonna believe this. But, but there's coming a day when this empire, the Roman Empire, that seems to be the most powerful thing in the world and nothing can defeat it, will, will be in ruins. And this Roman forum, these temples, will just be a tourist attraction. And, and Paul, you know where, where Nero had his circus? That's someday, you know, your buddy Peter? They're going to build probably too gaudy of an edifice in his memory on, on this space. And people from around the world will come to commemorate Peter. And you know that the, the, the emperor... The emperor would just be a footnote in the Jesus story. And Paul, you know the, the Colosseum there where so many people have lost their lives? In, in the Colosseum, it will just be ruins, but in the Colosseum, there will be a cross commemorating the risen Lord. And Paul, I know you think all hope is lost, and I know you think this might be the end. I know you've got to have doubts in this moment. But Jesus meant what he said because when, when there was that moment on that, that road where it's just Jesus and his disciples. He says this, I didn't read this earlier. But he said, I will build my church, I will build my gathering, I will build my movement, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. The power of the Roman Empire, the power of, of evil and darkness in this world, the thing that seems to be insurmountable, whatever that thing is, it will not overcome this movement that you have begun, that I have tasked you to be a part of. And, and, and I want to kind of end this series talking about this because I believe that all of us have been, every single one of you have been invited to be a part of this Jesus movement. If you know church history or you know history, don't forget church history, if you know history, there, there are moments of incredible darkness and evil and stupidity in the history of the church. The reason is because People are stupid and evil. Right? That's, that's, that's why. And it, the church is comprised of people. But the church is also one of the most beautiful and powerful movements of good in human history. Um, it is, we forget this, but it is the most diverse, uh, multi-ethnic, and like beautiful expression of the entire humanity that exists. Like, you, like the, the, the expression of that we forget sometimes because we kind of get stuck in our homogenous communities, but the body of Christ is the most diverse and beautiful thing you've ever seen. This morning, around the globe, there are Christians in every part of the world who are all celebrating the same risen Jesus that we are brothers and sisters with. The, 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 the force of compassion that has been unleashed in the world 
um, hospitals that have been built, schools that have been, that are educating people that nobody else would educate. And there's all kinds, there's dark sides to a lot of that. But Nicholas Kristof, um, who's a columnist in the New York Times, does such a, a good job. He's an atheist or an agnostic, but he does such a good job of capturing the beauty of what Christians are doing in the darkest places where nobody else would go around our globe. In spite of the brokenness of the church and in spite of it's the wrong that it's done, it's still, I believe, the hope of the world. And I'm more convinced of that today in a world where, um, in a world where it seems that, that chaos and darkness may have the final word. It, it does, right? You just, you turn on the news, you read the newspaper, and it seems that chaos and darkness and despair will have the final word. And what even makes it worse is you see your brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of some of that. But when we started the table, one of the things we said from the beginning is we're not reacting against anything. Um, there, often a church will start, a church plant will start, and it's like, we are starting a church because we're not them. We're not that. We're not like that. But we never wanted to be about that. We wanted to be, from the beginning, a community of people that was dedicated to the renewal of our city, to the renewal of the places that God has planted us. We wanted to be expression of the fruits of the spirit of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. We wanted to be a community that was known for love of God and love of neighbor. And that has been, there, is a, there, there are dark spots all throughout church history, but as you read through the history of the church and you read about the darkness, inside it there are constantly these renewal movements. There are these people who come and say, oh, I, we got so lost, we got so caught up with power, we got so caught up with whatever the thing is that drew us away. But can we go back and look at where we began and why we were called in the first place? And I believe that, in, that now more than ever, the world is in need of the hope of the local church. Because, and here's, I'm gonna end here. There are a number of things that all humans, that all humans struggle with. Humans struggle with suffering and sorrow, the fear of death. Um, humans struggle with loneliness and and, and they struggle with brokenness. Because whether you, whether you believe in sin or not, you know that there are things in your life where you, where you don't look like even what you want to look like. You definitely don't look like the image of love that you want to reflect. And I think that's something that's universal. That everyone struggles with loneliness and sorrow and suffering and a fear of death. And I believe that, that the church, that the Jesus movement provides an answer to the to the questions that people are asking. And it's so easy to get so distracted and caught up with all the noise and all the Christians who are just saying stupid things that we get so caught up in that that we forget what we've been called to be and who we've been called to be in the first place. We are a people of love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control. We are a people who should be known and marked by our love for all people. And I want to invite you to be a part of that movement. So here's what I, how I want to end today. I want to invite you to take a next step. Some of you, you've been sitting here throughout this whole series, and you've been kind of wrestling with whether you want to become a Jesus follower. 
Today could be the day where you say, you know what, I, I, I'm done wrestling. Like, I want to take a step to follow Jesus. Others of you made that decision some point in the series, and I want to encourage you to, to get baptized. We're going to do a baptism service in a little while um, and, uh, coming into the future, and we'll, we'll have more information. We'd love for you to take a step getting baptized. Others of you have been kind of sitting on the sidelines. You've been watching other people playing the game and serving and doing, you know, doing all the, the things that people do to 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 make the Jesus movement possible and serving your neighbors and all these things, but you've just been kind of sitting on the sidelines. I want to invite you to take a next step and maybe start serving. Um, others of you, you, you are living in isolation and loneliness. You, when you have something good in your life, you have nobody to celebrate it with, and when you have something bad happen, you have no one to support you through it. You need to, like, literally, you need to leave this space today, go home, and find a, a dinner party to join this week. Life was not meant to be lived alone. I, want to, I, I just want to invite you, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, take a next step. Join this Jesus movement. I believe it is the most beautiful and powerful thing on the face of the earth. And I believe, in spite of all of its shortcomings, that the local church, that the local Jesus gathering is the hope of the world. Let's pray.